Jeremiah in the chapter 1. We're going to read together once more from the verse 1. The Word of God says, The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priests that were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, unto the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, unto the carrying away of Jerusalem captive in the fifth month. Then the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee, and I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. Then said I, Ah, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a child. But the Lord said unto me, Say not, I am a child, for thou shalt go to all that I shall send thee, and whatsoever I command thee, thou shalt speak. Be not afraid of their faces, for I am with thee to deliver thee, saith the Lord. Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said unto me, Behold, I have put my words in thy mouth. See, I have this day set thee over the nations, over the kingdoms, to root out and to pull down and to destroy, and to throw down, to build, and to plant. Come down to verse 17. Thou therefore gird up thy loins and arise, and speak unto them all that I command thee. Be not dismayed at their faces, lest I confound thee before them. For behold, I have made thee this day a defense city, and an iron pillar, and a brazen walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, against the princes thereof, against the priests thereof, and against the people of the land. And they shall fight against thee, but they shall not prevail against thee. For I am with thee, saith the Lord, to deliver thee. And in our reading there at the verse 19. Last week then we considered the unique call of Jeremiah the prophet, a call in which we were reminded of the plan of God, which is a reality, of course, in all of our lives. But nevertheless, one which we see very evidently recorded here in the life of Jeremiah. Indeed, further to that, we also noted how that plan exists from our very infant years, just as also it did here in Jeremiah's life. I know how many of us then can look back and marvel that despite the start that we may have had in life, despite the course that we seemed intent upon in life, nevertheless, praise God, He had a plan, and His plan prevailed. And so reflecting in that surely reminds us one and all of the importance of yielding daily our lives to the Lord so that we may see His plan ultimately fulfilled in us and through us. The hymn writer put it this way, I have only one life on this earth, and as vapor it's passing away, I must labor for treasures of worth, or toil ends at the close of the day. Only one life to give, I could never withhold it from God. Only one life to live, I must not miss the well done of God. And so tonight, whether young or later in years, let us one and all resubmit all that we have and all that we are to the Master's care and indeed to the Master's service. 
Now remember, all of this was considered under the banner of the first point of our study in the life of Jeremiah, that being the primacy of preaching. And so whilst last week our study centered upon the call of the preacher, we nevertheless continue tonight to consider the calling of the preacher, that of delivering the message received from God. Because remember, that's what we highlighted. Jeremiah truly was, first and foremost. He was a preacher, one who sought to communicate what God placed upon his heart and what God directed him then to impart to awaiting people. In verse 7, this was highlighted as being his calling. The Lord said unto me, Say not, I am a child, for thou shalt go to all that I shall send thee, and whatsoever I command thee, thou shalt speak. But then, as we have also read in verses 17 through 19, this was confirmed as his calling. Thou therefore gird up thy loins and arise, speak unto them all that I command thee. Be not dismayed at their faces, lest I confound thee before them. For behold, I have made thee this day a defense city, an iron pillar, brazen walls, against the whole land against the kings of Judah, against the princes thereof, against the priests thereof, and against the people of the land. And they shall fight against thee, but they shall not prevail against thee. For I am with thee, saith the Lord, to deliver thee. Now, as we understand this to be the calling that Jeremiah was under obligation to fulfill, And remember, this was something very evident that was recorded here in the Word of God. For as he says there in the verse 4 of the chapter, then the Word of the Lord came unto me. This wasn't simply a suggestion here, Jeremiah. Take what I say unto you and go and share it with the people. No, this was a placing under the burden of obligation by God Almighty of His servant. Then as we understand this to be the calling the calling he was under obligation to fulfill, the calling that he subsequently showed great desire to fulfill, nowhere in this calling did God promise that it was going to be easy. Indeed, the opposite is true. In verses 17 through 19, we gain great insight into all that he could expect as he sought to fulfill his calling how that opposition would arise, rebellion would be known, personal vilification would be experienced, persecution would be known. But surely in these verses we also identify that God provided him with unfailing promises that he could rely upon at every twist and turn of his ministry, at every twist and turn of his life. And so, yes, he was maligned. Yes, he was mocked. Yes, he was despitefully treated. He was threatened. He was imprisoned. But yet through all of this and much, much more, he could rely upon protection from the Lord. He could testify that God had made him a defense city, an iron pillar, a brazen wall. Yet through it all, he stood in the midst of a rebellious people, unassailable, dauntless, and brave. He stood strong in the Lord and could say in times of distress, as he records in the chapter 20 and the verse 11, the Lord is with me as a mighty terrible one. Therefore my persecutors shall stumble 
and they shall not prevail. Remember, this was all but a fulfillment of the final words of verse 19. The promise of God that I am with thee to deliver thee. Now, all of this is worth mentioning. It's worth getting a grasp of as we enter into the life of Jeremiah and into the times of Jeremiah because it's been accurately stated by men with much more wisdom than me that Jeremiah as an entire book cannot be rightly understood apart from getting a proper grasp of all that's contained in chapter 1. For if we are to know the full benefit of studying this book of prophecy, a book that contains many deep scriptures, many prophetical scriptures, many things that cause us to search our own hearts and indeed to delve a little deeper into the Word of God and to chew, as it were, on the real fat of His Word, we must then identify the uniqueness and importance of His calling. We must grasp the work to which He was called. And we must be aware of the significance of the promises He received from the God who called Him. Now, all of this cascades into our generation. For whilst we in no way fulfill the office of the Old Testament prophet, we nevertheless have a duty to fulfill. For you and I as individual believers and as a corporate assembly have a duty to gossip the gospel, to live out the gospel, to avail of every opportunity given to us to provide an answer as to the hope that lieth within us. And as we too live in desperately wicked times, then we must also be sure of our calling. And we must be aware of the divine promises of God to protect us and to prosper us in such days. So yes, our individual calling may not be as unique as Jeremiah's was, but nevertheless, we are called. And we are called to do the work of God. And we are called, one and all, to communicate the message of God to a lost and to a dying world. And so just like Jeremiah, we have promises to rely upon. Promises which stand true no matter what may come our way. So tonight, take heart, dear believer, and press on in the master's service. Be involved as much as you are able to be in the work of the Lord. And above everything else, support every sincere endeavor in the gospel in this assembly and beyond and every faithful servant of God involved in those sincere efforts. Now, as we come to chapter 2, we see that Jeremiah wasted no time in seeking to fulfill his calling. For all that has occurred in chapter 1, then the wheels of motion really begin to turn. It tells us there in the verse 1 of chapter 2, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and cry in the ears of Jerusalem. 
Here we have, we believe, the first recorded message of Jeremiah, that which he was charged with delivering to the people. This is, as it were, the first sermon he preached. This is the first opportunity he had to jump wholeheartedly into that which God had commissioned and commanded him to do. And this message, as we read down through it in chapter 2, really sets a tone, sets a scene for all that will follow in the book. The prevailing theme of his message right throughout this chapter, and indeed then throughout the entire book, was coming judgment. There's an abundant evidence that as he ministered this message, it was a message that was also filled with compassion. He was a man whose heart was broken that God had passed judgment upon his people. His heart was broken that sin had abounded to such an extent that God's judgment was necessary upon his people. His heart was broken because it was evident that the people's hearts were hardened in their sin and hardened against God in light of the message being proclaimed. Let's read a little bit in chapter 2 just to get a sense of all of that. Go and cry in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, verse 2, Thus saith the Lord, I remember thee, the kindness of thy youth, the love of thine espousals, when thou wentest after me in the wilderness in a land that was not sown. Israel was holiness unto the Lord, and the firstfruits of his increase all that devour him shall offend. Evil shall come upon them, saith the Lord. Hear ye the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. Thus saith the Lord, What iniquity have your fathers found in me, that they are gone far from me, and have walked after vanity, and are become vain? Neither, said they, Where is the Lord that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, that led us through the wilderness, through a land of deserts, and of pits through a land of drought, and of the shadow of death through a land that no man passed through, and where no man dwelt. And I brought you into a plentiful country to eat the fruit thereof, and the goodness thereof. But when ye entered in, ye defiled my land, and made mine heritage an abomination. The priest said not, Where is the Lord? And they that handle the law knew me not, The pastors also transgressed against me, and the prophets prophesied by Baal, and walked after these things that do not profit. Wherefore I will yet plead with you, saith the Lord, and with your children's children will I plead. So as the chapter continues, we see repeated references to all that the Lord had blessed the people with but yet how they in turn had turned their back on him. And just as we noted in Ezekiel's account in the chapter 16, taking all the blessing of the Lord, taking all the goodness that he had bestowed upon them, taking all that rich heritage that was theirs to rejoice in and to build upon and simply flushed it all away. Now it had become not a nation of renown, but a nation of disgrace, a nation of shame, a nation bearing a reproach, a nation against whom the Lord had lifted up his hand in judgment. 
Such is the testimony of all that God commands Jeremiah to deliver. But nevertheless, as he continues to plead with the people right throughout this chapter, right throughout this book, he does so with a compassionate heart. He does so with a heart that yearns that the people would be turned, that the people would return unto the Lord, that the people would repent, that the people would be restored even to that right place of fellowship and relationship with God Almighty. But you come to the end of the book and we ask ourselves this question, did Jeremiah succeed? Was there any evidence indeed to be found that that which he communicated to the people had any effect, had any bearing? Surely the testimony of time is no. The testimony of God's Word is no. And so we say Jeremiah failed. Or did he? Remember, the overarching point we are considering here is that of the primacy of preaching. Here was someone who was commanded of God, commissioned of God, to go and simply declare to a people that which God imparted to him. And so surveying the whole book and knowing, of course, with hindsight, the benefit of hindsight as we come to this book, that the people turned not to God, but rather entrenched themselves more and more in their wickedness, more and more in their sin. We say, Jeremiah failed. Or did he? Because if preaching is truly an important activity, if preaching truly is an activity in which one engages at the very call and command and commission of God, then the very thrust of the point we are trying to make is to establish the importance of preaching in the life of the nation in the days of Jeremiah, but also the unending importance of preaching right through to our day and generation. And is it right then to gauge his success or otherwise based upon our understanding? We're considering this point, the importance of preaching, the primacy of preaching in the life of a man who was far from successful. A man whose message continually fell in deaf ears. A man who would never be considered to be the poster boy of preachers. All in our modern results-driven world, of course. I mean, he isn't somebody that we'd use as a case study of choice if we were seeking to encourage young men to consider the ministry, would he? But that's exactly the point. Yes, nothing in Jeremiah's life makes sense. Nothing in Jeremiah's ministry makes sense. I mean, why would he continue to do what he, do, what he did for over 40 years when no success was known? When more enemies and friends were made? And when no doubt the option of an easy life must have been so attractive? But that's why we must remember chapter 1. 
For that's the reason for it all. That's the meaning of his life, the measure of the man. He was one called of God. He was one committed to his calling from God. And as such, it makes perfect sense. And it reminds us that whenever you and I come to these things, we consistently and continually employ the wrong reasoning and have the wrong indicators of success when it comes to spiritual matters. For success in the spiritual sphere. Success in the work of the Lord is never measured in the temporal, never measured in the physical. Rather, it's measured according to the standard of heaven. And that standard has been succinctly summed up in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and the verse 2. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. And so if Jeremiah was called, and he was, if Jeremiah was doing God's work, and he was, if Jeremiah was preaching and proclaiming God's Word, and he was, then the success of Jeremiah's ministry was never to be measured in light of its acceptance by the people, in light of its outward impact upon the people. Rather, it was always to be determined in light of his faithfulness to God and faithfulness to the ministry that God had called him to. And surely the record of Scripture reminds us that to his calling, Jeremiah was faithful. To accurately come to that conclusion, we must, of course, understand a little bit more of the heavenly mandate for God's preachers. For those who are responsible to communicate God's Word to the nation in Jeremiah's days. For those who were responsible to instruct the people in the ways of God for those who were responsible in heralding forth the truth even when it wasn't popular to do so. What was the heavenly expectation that they served under? What indeed were the characteristics which should have been evident in the message that those who sought to serve God in this way proclaimed? Well, for a better understanding of that, let us come to the chapter 23. The chapter Now remember, we are trying to establish the primacy of preaching in the days of Jeremiah. We're seeking then to take that understanding and apply it to our day. But if you were working backward and asked the question, what makes a successful preacher? What determines a successful preacher? I wonder what would your response be? What would have to be evident in his life and his ministry for him to be rightly referred to or termed as a preacher of success? 
I dare say that in the world in which we live, in the times in which we live, that assessment would vary differently from all that the Bible records here in the times of Jeremiah. Let's read together in verse 1 of the chapter. It says, Woe be unto the pastors that destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, saith the Lord. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God of Israel, against the pastors that feed my people, ye have scattered my flock, driven them away, and have not visited them. Behold, I will visit upon you the evil of your doings, saith the Lord. And I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries whither I have driven them, and will bring them again to their foals, and they shall be fruitful and increase. And I will set up shepherds over them which shall feed them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed. Neither shall they be lacking, saith the Lord." Now, some say that the interpretation of this passage is solely in regards to the kings of Israel and Judah. But I suggest to you that what we read off here in chapter 23 is but a continuation of the message that begins in chapter 22. And if you read chapter 22, we see there that God directs Jeremiah to preach against all those who have and do hold positions of power and influence in the nation. Look there in the verse 1, for he begins with kings. Thus saith the Lord, go down to the house of the king of Judah, and speak there this word. Hear the word of the Lord, O king of Judah, that sittest upon the throne of David, thou and thy servants and thy people that enter in by these gates. Thus saith the Lord, execute ye judgment and righteousness, deliver the spoiled out of the hand of the oppressor, do no wrong, do no violence to the stranger, the fatherless or the widow, neither shed innocent blood in this place. Go down to verse 6. For thus saith the Lord unto the king's house of Judah. And so very evidently in verses 1 through 12, we have a message that's directed to those who sit on the throne, those who hold the position of king within the land. But look then also in verse 13. For in the verses 13 through 19, we see that the focus of the message is not only toward the kings, but toward the rulers. The regional rulers. Woe unto him that buildeth his house by unrighteousness, and his chambers by wrong, that useth his neighbor's service without wages, and giveth him not for his work. Continue on down and read through those verses, and you'll see that a charge is laid at the feet of those who have authority over a group of people, not just kings but those who hold positions of power and authority. And so you have kings specifically, verses 1 through 12, rulers and kings, verses 13 through 19, but then look in verse 20 and following right down to the end of the chapter, verse 30, and here Jeremiah deals direct, as directed by God with those who hold any influence, 
any sway within the land or indeed without the land also. Because remember, Jeremiah was not just a prophet to Judah, but according to chapter 1, he was also a prophet to the nations. And at that time, there were many nations who sought to have influence over the people. There were many nations who thought they had a right to give charges or decrees to the people. So Jeremiah has a message for them. Read in verse 20. Go up to Lebanon and cry. Lift up up thy voice in Bashan and cry from the passages, for all thy lovers are destroyed. I speak unto thee in thy prosperity, but thou saidest, I will not hear. This hath been thy manner from thy youth, that thou obeyest not my voice. Speaks to the inhabitant of Lebanon, verse 23. Verse 24, he speaks to Conai, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. He goes on then to speak unto the lands and unto those who indeed have that influence over Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, he refers to. And then he also says, O earth, O earth, O earth, hear the word of the Lord. And so we come into chapter 23. And we're dealing here with simply a continuation of the message that's found in chapter 22. That theme's continued. The delivery is uninterrupted. And the underlying motivation is still the same. And therefore, as we read together the opening verses of chapter 23, it is my sincere belief that we are dealing here with Scriptures that are directly related to the leaders in Jerusalem. Those who hold positions of power and authority those who have the ability to influence God's people. And this, therefore, inevitably includes those with spiritual authority and influence also. Within the groupings that are identified, the kings, the rulers, those with the spiritual authority and influence, God is testifying to this truth. The demise of the nation can be laid at your feet. The spiritual malady that is prevalent in the land can be laid at your feet. All because you have not discharged your responsibility in the way that I have commanded. By their actions they had demonstrated evil and unrighteousness. By their words, they had misguided the people and taught that which was completely at odds with God's revealed word and will for the nation. And so in both this chapter and indeed chapter 34 of the book of Ezekiel, we gain insight into what had gone wrong. We gain understanding of the results of that going wrong. Look there in the verse 1, it says, Woe be unto the pastors that destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, saith the Lord. God's people, we are told here, were destroyed. Speaking and testifying of spiritual destruction, spiritual death. God's people were scattered. This is the result of judgment, the inevitable outcome of coming judgment. 
No longer were they part of the fold. No longer did they know the safety and protection afforded from being part of the flock. They were, and in days to come would be, a people scattered far and wide. All because of how their leaders, both spiritually and practically, had discharged their responsibility before God. Look in verse 2, where the charge is made even more pointed, even more personal. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God of Israel, against the pastors that feed my people, ye have scattered my flock, driven them away, have not visited them. Behold, I will visit upon you the evil of your doings, saith the Lord. It was because of Jerusalem's leaders. It was because of their actions, their words, that the people of God would now be scattered. They'd been led and driven away from following after God and living in a way that was in keeping with His Word. And all of this serves to remind us that the message that the people were receiving from any of their leaders, whether those who had a secular position or those who had a spiritual position, but remember, we're placing the primary focus on spiritual leaders here. The message then that the people were receiving from such men may have been all-embracing in those days. May indeed even have embodied populism in those days. But it was far removed from the message or from the preaching that God desired the people to be exposed to. And so, from all of that, I believe we can rightly draw the conclusion that such was the saturation of this type of preaching and teaching in Jeremiah's days, that whenever true and faithful messengers such as he or such as Ezekiel came along, then such was the contrast between the two types of preaching and teaching that, was, that it was inevitable that faithful men of God would fail. They were exposed to, the people were exposed to so much teaching and preaching that simply tickled their ears and simply bought into the agenda of the day that whenever the faithful man of God stood up, whenever the faithful man of God declared that which God had given to him, that it was the complete antithesis of all that they had become conditioned to accept. So never were the people going to accept or take on board the life or indeed the words of Jeremiah, the faithful preacher. And so God says, Woe be unto such men. Now in verses 3 and 4 of this chapter, God identifies that which true preaching, that which true leading and guiding of His people that which the true proper application of His Word in the lives of the people, leaders and non-leaders alike, that which true preaching and true application would accomplish. Verse 3, we see there at the end of it, they shall be fruitful and increase. The right and proper application of God's Word would bring with it the knowledge of fruit and increase. Go forth and multiply was God's command to Adam in the garden. His message didn't change down through the generations. 
His desire was that blessing would be known by his people in the multiplication of their own kind. And even coming to this church age, we see that the call to the disciples was, I will make you fishers of men. His command to the church was, go teach all nations, go make disciples. You shall know fruit. You shall know increase. You shall know multiplication. But that's not all. Look in verse 4, set up shepherds over them which shall feed them. They shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall they be lacking, saith the Lord. From this verse we gain the understanding that a true relaying of God's Word, the right and the proper application of His Word, would result in an overcoming of fear, would result in a removal of dismay, would result in no longer would they as a people wander aimlessly through life. Now, undoubtedly, we could diverge into the prevailing prophetic theme found in this passage. But our intentions are to merely dip into it to gain a little more insight into preaching and its importance. And so, remember, this is not a passage entirely to do with preaching. But it does, however, involve a commentary on the behavior and the practice of those who had influence among the people. Those who stood in the place of, amongst other rules, preachers among the people. So remember once more, Jeremiah's call. Jeremiah's calling. He was called to be a preacher. His calling was to preach, to preach the Word of God. Whatsoever I command thee, thou shalt speak. I have put my words in thy mouth. Speak unto them all that I command thee. That's the record of chapter 1. And thus we see from chapter 23 that God desired Jeremiah to be faithful to his calling. And in doing so, that in the fulfilling of his calling, spiritual fruit would be produced in his people that the preaching of His Word would enable them to overcome fear and dismay, provide them with the ultimate purpose and context for their life, both individually and corporately. So tonight, remember, we're considering Jeremiah's ministry under the prevailing thought of the primacy of preaching. And so I take this opportunity to remind you that it remains to be the desire of God that through the preaching and the teaching of His Word, we too receive many benefits. So we turn to His Word, and as it is rightly divided amongst us, God desires that we might be empowered with that which is able to help us overcome fear and dismay in our lives. The giant of despair is an enemy who looms large to this very hour. Many believers tonight find themselves in the dungeon of life, unable, perhaps even unwilling, to break free and overcome. But yet it is in God's Word that we find His assurance, 
we find his assurance that we are to fear not. Indeed, applications of this truth are so abundant that we can take to ourselves a new one for each and every day of life. And so no matter who or what we face, we too have a perpetual assurance that we must not, should not, cannot fear. Living our lives here in this world, a world which is filled with enemies, a world which is fraught with dangers, a world which is abundant in discouragements, nevertheless, God's Word reminds us that He is our refuge and our fortress. In Him should we trust. He will cover us with His feathers and under His wings should we trust. We should not be afraid for the terror by night nor the arrow that flieth by day. For he shall give his angels charge over us and keep us in all our ways. And so tonight it is through the preaching of his word. God wishes to remind you not to fear. In Jeremiah's day, the people were dismayed because of all that was going on. They had noticed how that their enemies were waxing ever more powerful. They were well aware of what had occurred in the north of Israel as the enemy had come in like a flood. And they were well versed in the threats that they lived under. And so in such times, preaching was much needed, much required. Preaching which would feed them. Preaching which would enable them to fear no more nor be dismayed. But sadly, the preaching that they were exposed to by and large was preaching which encouraged associations and alliances with heathen nations, encouraged the worship of and the praying to many different gods, encouraged the people to look to their leaders to rely upon their own strength. But surely we can say with authority that the preaching they needed to hear was preaching which directed their hearts and minds and eyes to God and to God alone, which reminded them of the truth of His unfailing Word. And that truth which was found in the days of Jeremiah, if the people had but heard the Word of God, is consistent with the truth that is found in our day. Truth that reminds us amongst many other things. Do not be afraid. So tonight, dear believer, who or what is your enemy? Is it the attitude and relentless attacks of the ungodly? Is it a health concern? A reminder that life is fragile? Life is finite? Is it a prevailing sense of insecurity, unworthiness, or shortcoming? 
Does your enemy attack in the daytime or in the quiet hours of the night? Does the enemy call into question your service for God, your call from God, your very standing in Christ? Wonder tonight, are you perplexed? Do you feel boxed in? Is there a sense of vulnerability like nothing you've ever experienced before? Is it just a success to be here? To be in this moment? To be hearing this message? Is the call of the world, the claims of the devil, or indeed the common sense and rational reason of human intellect winning your heart and your mind day by day? Let me remind you, like Paul, that you do well to let the Word of God dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Allow His Word to be your rock and your stay. Allow His Word to accomplish all that He desires. And so tonight, as part of that work that God desires preaching to effect in you, hear the voice of Christ whisper to your heart tonight, It is I. Be not afraid. Allow His Word to provide the proper and Christ-like context for living, for ministry, even for dying. Allow the fruits of the Spirit to be cultivated in your heart so that you too might be fruitful and increase as you rightly divide and apply His truth. There's one more aspect of Jeremiah's preaching that we do well to consider. For not only was it the desire of God that preaching would remove fear, would remove dismay from the minds and from the hearts of His people, But it was also God's desire that a message of grace and forgiveness might be always communicated. Consider chapter 26, in verse 2 and 3. Thus saith the Lord, stand in the court of the Lord's house, And speak unto all the cities of Judah which come to worship in the Lord's house all the words that I command thee to speak unto them, diminish not a word. If so be, they will hearken and turn every man from his evil way, that I may repent me of the evil which I purpose to do unto them because of the evil of their doings. Come across to chapter 36. Read again the verses 2 and 3. Take thee a rule of a book, and write therein all the words that I have spoken unto thee against Israel, and against Judah, and against all the nations from the day I spake unto thee, from the days of Josiah, even unto this day. It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the evil which I purpose to do unto them, that they may return 
every man from his evil way that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. Both of these references provide us with ample evidence that God desired Jeremiah to continually, to consistently preach a message that demonstrated and indeed applied the truth of his grace and his willingness to forgive. But perhaps the greatest of these is found for us in chapters 3 and 4. In chapters 3 and 4, we have a message that's very finely and very succinctly put to the nation. In verse 13 of chapter 3, the Word of God says, Only acknowledge thine iniquity. Thou hast transgressed against the Lord thy God, and hast scattered thy ways to the strangers under every green tree. Ye have not obeyed my voice, saith the Lord. Turn, O backsliding children, saith the Lord, for I am married unto you. And I will take you, one of a city and two of a family, and will bring you to Zion. Verse 22. Return ye backsliding children, and I will heal your backslidings. Behold, we come unto thee, for thou art the Lord our God. Chapter 4 and verse 1. If thou wilt return, O Israel, saith the Lord, return unto me, and if thou wilt put away thine abominations out of thy sight, then shalt thou not remove. Verse 3, For thus saith the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground, and sow not among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Take away the foreskins of your heart, ye men of Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my fury come forth like fire, and burn that none can quench it because of the evil of your deeds. Jeremiah here is commanded to communicate a message of God's grace and forgiveness. It's a message that touches the heart of every wayward child of God. It's a message that gives hope to the sinner and the wicked. For this message reminds one and all that there is a God in heaven who is rich in mercy, full of grace, full of truth. God declares himself to be a merciful God, a God who does not keep anger forever, according to verse 12 of chapter 3. A God who is devoted to and committed to His people, according to verse 14. A God in whom alone salvation is found, according to verse 23. And thus to a wayward people, He says, Turn, O backsliding children. In the verse 22, Return, ye backsliding children, and I will heal your backslidings. That's an interesting verse in itself, for it's really just a play in words. He's depicting the people here as a people who are prone to turning. They've turned this way, they've turned that way, they've turned back, they've turned round, and they've turned themselves so much about they don't even know what direction they're going. But yet he's saying to them, in all your turnings, you have turned from one God to another God, from one nation to another nation, from one leader to another leader. But yet through it all, you fail to turn to me. And if you would but turn and turn to me, then I would heal your land. I wonder, is that a description of you tonight? 
Are you one whose love for God and for the things of God has grown cold? Are you a pale reflection of who you once were? Who you desire to be? Would you not turn? Would you not allow the preaching of God's Word to remind you of the grace and the forgiveness that is available with God? Would you not come and repent and allow Him to bring you into a deeper and closer relationship? God exhorted the people through Jeremiah to not just allow preaching to affect or influence their mind. But rather, as he said in the verse 4 of chapter 4, to do a complete work in their heart. By taking away the foreskins of their heart, they would allow the work of grace to be seen. That work of grace would not only change their worship, but also their behavior. Tonight, God is calling you if you are wayward. If you have erred from the way that he has called you to walk, He is calling you to allow the preaching of His Word to effect a change of heart that will inevitably bring a change of behavior. And so through preaching tonight, you're reminded of His grace, His goodness, His forgiveness. Will you come and turn to Him? God places an importance upon the faithful preaching of His Word. It's His Word and its faithful exposition and declaration that is to have primacy in the life of the preacher. It's preaching that communicates them to the child of God not to fear. It's preaching that conveys the grace and the forgiveness of God to his erring children. It's preaching that reminds us of his unchanging faithfulness and of the fact that he is and remains to be the covenant-keeping God of Scripture, the same yesterday, today, and forever. May God bless his word. Your hearts tonight. Father, we look to Thee even in days whenever it is hard and difficult to live out Thy Word. But we pray, our God, that Thou would be pleased to give us hearing ears, willing hearts and ready hands to do all that Thou hast bidden us to do. Help us to delight in the preaching of Thy Word. Help us to rejoice even in its proper and right application to our hearts and lives. Help us to be obedient even to thy call through thy word. Help us to live lives that are holy and set apart unto thee. And so tonight we pray that thou would speak into that troubled heart. Words of comfort, words of peace. Speak into that wayward heart. The one who needs to return and walk in the ways appointed by thee. And speak into every waiting heart hearts that need to be reminded of thy grace, thy goodness, 
the unfailing nature of thy character, the unfailing truth of thy word. And do us all good in the reflection of thy word tonight, that truly preaching may have the intended outcome that thou dost desire to have. We pray through thy spirit that thou would speak on and enable us all to rejoice in the unfailing word that abideth forever. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.